Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Back with more travel news, travel tips, and travel chats. Today, I'm chatting with Faith Misick, an African dance teacher who has a love of cultural education, specifically in developing countries. And she's also the author of Black Girl in China. She shares her experience of living abroad and her many experiences as a cultural educator. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and a continued conversation in the Culture Report. But right now, I've got some travel news. These airlines have the most legroom to stretch, even in coach. And yes, if you have any kind of height on you, <laughs> you definitely want some more legroom. Flying in comfort with enough legroom to stretch out and yes, maybe even stow your bag under the seat in front of you seems like a simple ask. Unfortunately, this isn't always the case. Not all economy seats are created equal, but doing the research to select a flight that'll give you an extra inch of space may make all the difference. After all, economy class legroom continues to shrink as some airlines add newer but tighter aircraft to their fleets, while other airlines seem almost pervertedly proud of squeezing in passengers. We're looking at you, Allegiant and Spirit Airlines, with your 28-inch pitch, the industry word for how much space you can have between your seat and the one in front of you. It's called pitch, and that's amongst the minimum. But thankfully, there are some airlines that haven't yet adopted the Sardine 10 model, so let's talk about the airlines in the United States with the most legroom in economy. They are JetBlue Airways and Southwest Airlines. And yes, they're both discount carriers. Alaska Airlines and Hawaiian Airlines have a 31 to 32 inch pitch. Alaska's improved when they assumed Virgin America. And Delta has a 30 to 32 inch when I give this range, it's really based on the aircraft because there are so many different types of aircraft, whether it's Airbus or Boeing, and then each of them have different types of carriers. You're going to have different configurations and different types of legroom, so it can vary, so an airline can have a range. American Airlines, Silver Airways, and United all will range at 31 inches. Avello Airlines and Breeze Airways at 30 inches. And international airlines with the most legroom in economy are Japan Airlines, 33 to 34 inches. ANA, Emirates, EVA Airways, and Singapore Airlines have 32 to 34. Air China, Air France, Ethiopian Airlines, and Korean Air. Pitches range from 32 to 33. Cathay Pacific, Swiss, and Vietnam Airlines have 32-inch pitches. Aer Lingus, Aerolinius Argentinus, Eurowings, Turkish Airlines, Virgin Australia, and many others range between 30 and 32. So you may want to check the airline's seat pitch the next time you're booking economy class. What is great, though, that a lot of airlines are adding premium economy or comfort plus or more room economy. So if you don't want to spend for the business class, that's a happy medium between your standard economy seat and business class. Now, what are the best carry-on bags? So rather than talk about specific brands, let's talk about the construction of the bags. And also I want to mention that the extended warranties or lifetime warranties rarely exist anymore. So it's something that you may want to add to protect your bag as these things break and like zippers and wheels and things of that nature. So what are the two types we're talking about? The two-wheel or the four-wheel? Two-wheel bags will last longer than four-wheel bags. However, four-wheel bags, especially those with the spinner wheels, will work better on airplanes, the tight, narrow row. I always have to turn my bag sideways to take it down, and I can only do that with my spinners. So the choice is yours. Two wheels last longer, but they're not as flexible. 
the four wheels, especially for carry-ons, are going to be the best because, yes, you can turn them sideways and go down that narrow aisle. Hard or soft? That is the question. Most people think that hard-sided luggage looks nicer and lasts longer. But actually, soft-sided luggage should last longer given the knocks and bumps. And I would agree. I do have hard-sided luggage, but I do remember that my soft luggage lasts longer. I often find dents and cracks in my hard side with all of the rough handling that the airlines give your bags. Although soft bags will tear and rip or can, but there's not as many sharp objects to do that. So mostly it's the weight or it's the banging around that hard side bags will. So yeah, you might want to look into soft sided luggage and it's more expandable. It's just more forgiving. Talking about warranties, there are several trustworthy manufacturers that provide lifetime warranties, but in most cases it's worthwhile to spend a little extra for that peace of mind because that list is dwindling. Most now are not offering that lifetime warranty. And as for size, look for a specific size luggage if you travel primarily abroad inside Europe or within America. That carry-on, I know everyone is pushing the limit to the size of the carry-on bag, but as more and more people don't want to pay to check their luggage, the flights are getting more and more full and therefore the airlines are now forcing you to check that bag. You know, you see the measuring bin at the boarding gate, they may ask you to put it in there. So 21 inches is really the standard. Some push it to 22. But again, if you have wheels, that's going to make it a little bit taller. And sometimes if it doesn't completely fit in there, the airline will make you check that bag for checked bags. The thing is, most airlines now, especially in economy class, have a maximum of 50 pounds and 62 inches total circumference so that's adding up all the sides must be 62 inches or less the larger your bag the more you feel like you need to fill it up and the heavier it's going to be i just never see a need in having that larger checked bag you know that 24 26 inches usually the maximum of what i'll need and it keeps me honest <laughs> because remember the weight of the bag counts toward when you put your bag on the scale to be weighed Hopefully you've learned to just pack light. Hyatt is launching a new brand in Japan. It's the Royokan. So if you're not familiar, those are like the hot springs, traditional Japanese style resorts and or hotels. They've teamed up to launch a new Royokan style brand with hot spring resorts amenities. The joint partnership for the Atona brand will be 50-50. Atona will attract both domestic and international tourists interested in wellness. In Japan, onsen hot spring spas are very well liked. These hotels are usually not very inexpensive, so usually one will stay for a night or two, but it is an excellent experience. So check one out the next time you're in Japan. Now, what are the 10 best places in the United States to travel on a budget? Americans spend a lot of money traveling, and some of the significant increases in personal expenditure this year have been for travel and pleasure due to the pandemic's pent-up demand. However, you don't need to spend your entire hard-earned funds in order to enjoy your upcoming holiday. For each city on, your, on the list that I'm going to give you, the Numbeo's Cost of Living Index was used, the Restaurant Index, and Local Purchasing Power Index to determine the top destinations for travelers on a tight budget. So those top 10, San Antonio, Texas, absolutely love that destination. Oklahoma City, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Salt Lake City, Utah, Louisville, Kentucky, Austin, Texas, Orlando, Florida, although Disney has gotten very expensive over the years, Las Vegas, Nevada, very interesting. Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Tampa, Florida. You know, Vegas does offer a wide range of product and services, so I can see why they would be on a top list for a budget, because it doesn't have to be baller. Maybe you can ball on a budget. Now, summer is over, but not the case for European travel. Airline executives say that the demand for flights to Europe from the U.S has remained resilient well into the fall. 
well past the traditional peak for trips to the region. Patrick Quayle, United Airlines Senior Vice President of Global Network Planning and Alliances said, I've never seen anything like this before in my life in terms of demand for fall. It's a welcome shift for airlines as they seek to drum up revenue after travel restrictions and concerns about COVID-19 sapped demand for many European trips in 2020 and in 2021. Lucrative business travel segments have been slower to return than leisure, making these trips all the more crucial. Kyle Potter, executive editor of Thrifty Traveler, says that I think there's no question that people's appetites for going to Europe has gotten even longer. They saw some really grossly high airfares, anywhere from 900 to 1200 in July and August. And maybe they saw a deal to get there for half the price. Plus, a strong U.S. dollar is making fall trips to Europe more attractive, driving down costs of everything from shopping to Milan to high-end dining in Paris or London. For the first time in many years, the U.S. dollar has been on par with the British pound. The extension of the typical European travel season follows a rocky summer of air travel, particularly in that region where challenges ranged from staffing shortages and lost luggage to heat waves and sky-high fares. From August to September, carriers cut the number of seats they were flying to Europe from the United States by 5.4%, followed by another 3.6% cut from September to October, according to aviation analytics company Sirium. In 2019, those same periods saw schedule cuts 7 and 7.6% respectively. Overall capacity is still slower than 2019, meaning travelers have fewer seats to choose from compared with three years ago, a factor that has kept fares firm. Fare tracker Hopper estimates international round-trip tickets are averaging $891 this month, up 12% from 2019, but down from a peak in June of 1064 And we can expect this trend to continue well into October and November. Now, we know that the summer has ended and so has the beach season. But have you ever considered beaches in the fall? Yeah, you might not be out there swimming, but there are a lot of great things you can do and experiences you can have at beach destinations in the fall. So Kate Sitars for Smarter Traveler put together a list of 10 beaches that are best to visit in the off season. Cannon Beach in Oregon is one, Ditch Plains Beach in New York, Moship Beach in Massachusetts, Pfeiffer Beach in California, Kennebunk Beach in Maine, Sunset Beach in North Carolina, Mackinac Island, Michigan, Cove Beach, New Jersey, and Malaquite Beach in Texas. In some places, you may just want to sit out on the beach with a blanket and a bottle of wine and cozy up or maybe a cup of joe. You'll also find lower prices at beach resorts. So it's a great time to go if you just want to do some rest and relaxation. Maybe not swim in the ocean or water, but relax and chill with some lower prices, less crowded places and just some peace of mind. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and author of Black Girl in China, Faith Missick. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com. And some other things that I want you to do is to connect with me on social media and join that travel club. Yes, we are traveling so many different places already for 2022, and we're working on our 2023 calendar. So make sure you're connected so that you'll be the first to know when we're on the go, and then you too will have a chance to join us. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Off-season and off-times are the best ways to save on luxury destinations and restaurants. You ever have an expensive high-end restaurant you wanted to try out? If you'd like to experience it and save a bit of dough, try it out at lunch. 
They, too, will sometimes offer lunch specials or a prefix special that will save you money. Brunch is another option. Often, brunches have set prices. The same is true for a luxury resort or hotel. Go during the off-season when pricing is lowered all around. They may even offer specials like one night free, added amenities like a spa treatment, an upgrade, or a credit for dining. No need to forgo luxury. Just try it at a more affordable time. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Today, I'm excited to talk to a global impactor, an author, and a culture chaser. I'm speaking to Faith Missick today. Hello, Faith, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, absolutely. Well, when I read a little bit about you, I was really excited about what you're doing, your journey, and especially your travel journey. You seem like one of these people that lives without walls, the global explorer, if you will. And I think that's so, (laughs) so important. But your beginnings, I'm looking here with a degree in political science uh, Mm. that led you to so many different places. So let's start there. (laughs) Let's start there. Political science to teaching African dance. Yes. Well, originally, I started doing African dance when I was maybe in elementary school. My parents put me in African dance. So I think that's what really got me into culture, especially from a Caribbean-American background. And so when I was in poli-sci, a lot of the research that interested me was the international studies, specifically looking at developing countries in Africa. And so that's kind of what is always like a mix of like what I'm passionate about with my educational background. And so I got my undergrad in poli-sci and went on to get a master's in international and comparative politics, specifically looking at a lot of research when it comes to culture and when it comes to African countries. You know, and that's just something that I think we should all pay attention to is that we may set out for different things, but sometimes Mm -hmm. other things present themselves through the exposure that we're getting or something that we're doing that sparks an interest elsewhere. And it doesn't mean that we have to completely change course, but it means that we can incorporate these things as we go. We're collecting these experiences and we're collecting these passions and desires. And we can either combine them all, or sometimes it does take us in a different direction. Now, through your education, you talked about some of the other avenues in education, but one part of that led you to cultural education. Tell us a little bit more Mm -hmm. about that. So while I was a graduate student, I had a professor who actually used to teach in D.C. at an international cultural program called Envision Experience. And so he recommended that I do it. And so I actually did it my first year of graduate school. And so what we did was teach cross-cultural communication to international high school students from all over the world. So I taught students from Germany, from Australia, to South Africa, to London, even students in the U.S. as well, who are looking to get that cultural experience. And so that's kind of what kicked it off. And so what we would do was teach them to be international ambassadors, as we call it, global citizens. And so this idea of bridging different cultures and how that can really just give a different perspective. And so I always say, like, people love to travel and everybody's on the travel wave right now. And so I think for me, it's not just about, like, taking the trips, but also being immersed in the culture and being able to mix that with education as well. And so I did that for six years teaching in D.C. And then when I came back to Chicago to teach full time, I was teaching world history. And so a lot of my curriculum dealt with the culture behind the countries that we're looking at in these different areas. So, yeah. So when you were teaching this, were you going to the different countries or were they coming to you where you were at that time? So the students were actually coming to us in Washington, D.C., and they would stay for one week in D.C., and then we would travel to New York, and they would stay a second week, and we would have three sessions. So I have about 25 students for each session. But on top of that, I did do a lot of traveling, I will say, to different parts of the world. I've been lucky enough to have friends who love to travel as well. So we started doing trips probably when I was in college, when all of us had enough money to go on our own outside of our family. 
So while I was there, I normally try to stay at least a few days where it's not just doing the touristy things, but actually understanding what the culture is. And so with those experiences, I've also had the experience to live abroad as well and have that interest because I was so influenced by different cultures throughout the world. That brings me to a question then, because Mm -hmm. I think for me, I remember what it was, but I think for a lot of people, sometimes it was one event or experience or exposure. And so the question is, what sparked that wanderlust? Because you said you were traveling at a young age. I think it was definitely my parents. They instilled that in me. I always would tell them, like, I want the new Jordans. And they're like, we just did a trip to Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) My dad, he's a super big traveler as well. He's done a lot of traveling while he was in school and then also having that Caribbean background. So my dad was born in the Turks and Caicos Islands. And so I had a passport probably when I was about eight or seven, I want to say, is when the first time that I went out of the country. And so I think that I get it from him, definitely. And just always feeling like there's just so much more to see in the world. Even now, like if I stay in the States too long, I'm like, okay, I'm itching to go somewhere. (laughs) And so people are always like, are you here? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I'll be here. I'll be here. But I always just get that urge to just go and see like, okay, what's next? What else is there? And it just has always really like helped my perspective on life and to see how other people live. Now, with the students that you had from different countries, I remember correctly, some of the countries you mentioned were England and Germany. They were already studying in the United States and then came to Washington, D.C. to take your course? No. So they actually were there as like a summer program. So the way Envision works is that you would get nominated by a teacher to come and pretty much get like a cultural experience in the States. And so they would come for just the two weeks and then they would go back. But even now, like I have students who were in that program when they were in high school and most of them are juniors and seniors. And now they (laughs) are graduating college. That tells my age a little bit, but (laughs) are asking like letters of recommendation. So yeah, it's just a really good experience. They get to go to the States Department. And the curriculum is based on cross-cultural communication, looking at the way other people are living throughout the world. It's that, I guess they would call it educational diplomacy is what they would call it at the States Department or that cultural diplomacy, where you're bringing countries together and their differences and trying to develop this sense of community and as one global citizen. Mm. So how did they respond to you? Were there a lot of different ethnic differences? And how did they Mm -hmm. respond to you during their course study with you? I guess they're kind of the same as when I go travel. (laughs) It's a bit of culture shock because I would definitely say from looking outside and coming to America and and having this understanding of, of what America is, the culture is very like this pop culture. So it's very much like, oh, what's happening in like the hip hop world and like what's happening on the news. And so honestly, saying that I was from Chicago would always be like, oh, my goodness, you live in Chicago. It's a lot of shootings. Right. And I'm like, well, it is. But (laughs) I grew up here. So for me, like I love the city that I grew up in. I love Chicago. And so I think that was probably even outside of me just being a black African-American woman. I think that was one of the things that I would have questions from my international students. Like, is the racism as big as it is, as you see on the news? Like, I heard that they don't, you know, the way that they treat Black people is very difficult to live here. And so it would be a lot of conversations about, like, my life and the experiences that I've had. And I would definitely have to stress that America is so culturally diverse that my experience as an American is going to be totally different from my white male or my white female, my Indian American colleagues. And so I encourage them to have different conversations with the other teachers that were there as well. But I think it's definitely when anybody going to a new country, it's definitely culture shock. But what I like about the students is that they already have this interest in coming to a new country and knowing that they're going to meet students from other countries. And so they have that open mindedness that they're just ready to learn. And you mentioned global citizen. So we actually reference it as a general term to just say as someone who doesn't feel like they're specifically a citizen of just their their country or their region that they're living in. But the idea that everything that is happening around the world is impacting you as a person that lives in this specific world. So in my work, I do a lot of social impact and the organizations that we're normally donating to when it comes to philanthropy that we are trying to build these partnerships with 
are not necessarily in the United States. And so for me to have this passion, to have this care, to feel that what is happening there is affecting me directly is when it comes into me feeling like I'm a part of that community as well. It's the, the world as one community, this global idea that everything is not affecting me because I don't live there, but it's still affecting me because I'm a part of the, where we say is our world. Absolutely. Well, during this process in your research, was there something in particular that you discovered about yourself that kind of surprised you or just something that you discovered about yourself? I think it's more so that I was just very passionate about it. I think that the urge to go definitely was something that I learned about myself and it feeling that staying in the States for me, it was so comfortable that it became uncomfortable. And I felt like I had to move. And I guess that's kind of like when people are going into their next career, or going into a new chapter in their life. For me, like being in the United States, I felt this sense of feeling like too comfortable. And for me, it's traveling. It's so wild because people are like, how do you even get the means to travel? And I'm like, I honestly sacrificed a lot to want to travel the world. And that's my thing. And so I guess that is kind of like a surprise because I didn't know when I was growing up that I thought I'd be a lawyer and I would just live my life through my parents and like do my family, things like that. But I really developed this niche for feeling like I have to go and have to see and that it's really become my passion. I certainly do understand that. And I think that there are priorities that we all have. Mm -hmm. And those priorities are those things that are important to us. And so we don't judge each other based on what those priorities are, because those are the Mm -hmm. things that we love. So for you, it's travel. So you're going to make a way Mm -hmm. to be able to do that, just as if someone had Mm -hmm. a passion for electronics. They may have every electronic in the world and we don't quite Mm -hmm. get it. Like, why would you spend your money on all of that? But that's their passion and that's their priority. So they're going to make it work. And even if it doesn't look like they can afford it to us or to someone Mm -hmm. else, they're going to find a way to make it work and make it affordable because it's their passion and their priority. So I think that's what that's about. What did you discover about others in terms of as you're interacting and your experiences and teaching and all of that? Was there something in particular you discovered about others that you were coming in contact with and how they were reacting to you? I will give an example. So I was living in Paris last year as I was doing a career change and I had a classmate who, when you think about people that travel and people who are like, oh, I'm up and leaving and moving to Paris, you think that they're more similar to you than different. And my perspective on Black Americans and African Americans and just like my ability to have an understanding of where people are coming from was totally different than her perspective growing up as a Black woman. And she's a little bit older than me, so she's had more experiences than me. And so her perspective, though, was totally different on how the interactions were, on how people viewed each other. And a lot of times we agreed to disagree. And and you think that because people do the same things as you, that they think a lot like you. But we were very like on two different ends on certain things. And so I think that made me realize like, okay, like just because you're traveling and just because you know that traveling develops this idea of open-mindedness and develops these different traits, it doesn't mean that people are also traveling for the same things that you're traveling for. And so I think what I love about traveling is that you get to interact with people who are from like different backgrounds and who do have these different experiences. And so at least for me, it just makes me appreciate how people think and how people learn and to be able to at least develop that skill and be able to work with different people. Like I always put that like as a resume thing, like I'm very flexible and very adaptable because I've come across a lot of people who have these differences. And so I think like traveling and just being around other people who may have the same ideas as me, but not necessarily, or have just like, you travel a lot. Why? And I'm just like, because that is who I am. That is what I've grown to love. That's what I've grown to do. Yeah, that's an interesting question that people ask. Oh, why do you travel? And I guess mm-hmm. for those of us who love to travel, we're kind of thinking, well, why not? <laughs> yeah, I, I, Paris, trying to convince my friends that I was just going to Paris. They're like, have you been? I'm like, no. Okay, so, and I lived in Paris for a year, and I knew I would be there for a year, and my parents were like, yeah, go, you know, but it was a lot of people where I was explaining it because they knew it was going to be expensive, it was a career change for me, 
And so out of teaching and I went into a business degree. And so they're like, you could do that here. And I'm like, yeah, but why not do it in Paris? Absolutely. (laughs) So we've talked about you as a global impactor. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about you as an author, your book, Mm -hmm. Black Girl in China. What led you to China? So while I was in graduate school, like I said, I did a lot of research on African countries. And one of the things that was happening that was becoming a topic in our studies was that Chinese relations, they were having a lot of relations with African countries, whereas like the Chinese government was having a lot of conversations with the African Union in terms of development, in terms of investing in these different countries and building up these different communities. And so it's interesting enough, almost 10 years later, I went to Nigeria and I saw a lot of people of Chinese descent in Nigeria helping build up different infrastructures in Nigeria. And so I'm looking back on my research and I actually wrote the research paper on it. Are these Chinese relations, are they actually genuine? Because them two seeing themselves as global citizens, as people that are supposed to be helping in the world as their type of like giving back, or was it more so on the becoming this major power, putting themselves back at the top? Cause there's always this big competition between China and America. And so That's actually what sparked my interest in China because I wrote the paper on it. And I was graduating and I was applying for like nonprofits in DC. And it was actually as a joke, like (laughs) for me to apply to China. And I just applied because I saw it on LinkedIn and was like, hi, I'll just apply to China. And they called me like literally not even within 24 hours. I think they called me maybe like at the end of that day saying, are you still interested? We'd love to interview you. And I interviewed like two days later. And two days turned into like two weeks later. And they called me back and I was on my graduation trip with my friends. And I'm at dinner. I'm like, guys, I'm going to China. They're like, what? And I'm like, I'm staying in China for a year. And I'm like, and I'm moving in a month. And I hadn't even told my parents yet. And so I didn't get any shots. It was so fast. And I was just like, I mean, why not? I knew I wanted to live in D.C. because I wanted to be like in this international experience and some work in international studies or relations. And when I saw the opportunity, I was like, I mean, why not? My dad had visited China. He was in Beijing when he was doing a study abroad program when he was in college. And so I think being able to see that he had done something like this, it also influenced me to say, hey, you know, like, just go. Like, why not? So that kind of led me to China. It was such a spontaneous thing. And I think that was the first time that I realized like, okay, you're like a high risk taker. (laughs) Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. But with the observation that you have, because I travel to South Africa, actually annually until the pandemic, of course. But one of the things that I noticed over the years is that I'm seeing more and more of a presence of China in Mm -hmm. Africa. And actually, as there was these emerging markets that they call the BRIC, right? This Brazil mm-hmm. and Russia and India and China. I really saw China having much more of a presence than any of them. Well, how long were you in China? So I was there for five months. I was supposed to stay a year, but as I say in my book, I think I was in culture shock the entire time I was there <laughs> because it was just very difficult to adjust to. I think that, at least for me, like I remember... Um, the places that I felt most comfortable were Beijing and Shanghai. And I think it was because in those places, I also saw people that looked like me. The city that I was in was in Chuzhou, China, which is Southeast China, maybe like five or six hours south of Shanghai on a bullet train, which is like their high speed trains. And so I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. Like everybody knew who I was, especially like I was the black teacher in China. And so within my community, it was very small. Like I would go out to the club and they were like, oh, you're the last year, which is like the teacher. And they knew exactly what school I taught at. And so I stayed there for five months. I was supposed to stay there for a year, but it was an interesting issue with my money. And I had an issue there. And so when my boss asked me, because I wanted to go home for Chinese New Year, he asked me, are you going to come back? Because, you know, it's very far. And I know you like, you've been having a difficult time. And I was just like, I don't think I'm going to come back. (laughs) And so I ended up breaking it from a year to five months, but still very, very much impactful on my life. Well, and you certainly say in your book that, and I quote, you're letting China into your life, but you're finding yourself in the process. So why that statement? How did that impact you? 
I really wanted to have like a sense of independence. I'm the baby. I'm spoiled. If my mom could like keep me at the house forever, like she would. And so I always felt that there was like this independence that I was always looking for. And I think that even like going so far away, like I thought that I would gain that. I lived on my own in college, but I couldn't call anybody. I couldn't call my parents. I couldn't call my friends to come help. Like a lot of it, like I had to build this on my community there. And then if I needed like a resource, like I was able to do so. But I have a story. When I visited Beijing, it was a fall holiday. And I was in the process of getting my visa transferred into an official work visa so that I could travel throughout Asia and without a problem. And so I didn't have my passport and they gave me this piece of paper. So at the hostel I was staying at, I actually left the piece of paper there. So when I got to the airport, I couldn't find the piece of paper. And that was what I was using like to travel with. I didn't have to, your ID is not valid there. So you, you need your passport. And so that was acting as my passport. Went back to the hospital, they couldn't find it. So I was literally in Beijing. Like, am I going to have to go to the US Embassy? Like, this is my worst nightmare. And I just had to figure it out. I had a friend who I was traveling with. Like, she was just super supportive because I was just in the airport crying. Like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? It was during the day in China. It's a 12-hour difference. I think my parents were even sleeping at that time. And my parents were going to be, like, flipping out as well. So I was like, let me not call them. Let me figure it out. And we had to go to an alley in Beijing to ask somebody to print off my passport that was, like, in an email. (laughs) which is already sketchy as well. And I met another guy, Ben, I can't think of his name right now, but I met somebody else and he's actually from Chicago. And we had met him being out like that weekend. And he allowed us to stay at his apartment that he had there for a few days because at this point they wouldn't let me travel. They wouldn't let me take a plane with the paper. So I actually had to take a train to my friend's city, which was closer, and then take another train down to my city because I couldn't fly back. I kept asking, like, I want to be independent. I want to feel like I have, like, this sense of responsibility and that I'm capable of doing these things as I'm growing up into an adult, into a Black woman. And China really taught me some of those, like, lessons. It would just be things that were just happening. Like, my apartment, I remember, like, the laundry flooded one time. And China has like different types of bugs throughout the entire season. Like we have summer and bugs come and then they like stop. (laughs) But China is where I was living. It's like they just come all throughout the season. So I had to mop and then the bugs were like on the floor because it wasn't like clean properly. It was just so many things. And I always say China is just Chinese. (laughs) And I would just have to figure it out. So even now when I think about like things that will happen to me, I'm like, I mean, it wasn't as bad as like China. China made me really grow up when you leave college and you go into the world. It really made me have to be like, okay, you have to figure it out. Life goes on. I was going to ask you, what was your biggest challenge? Is there something different than that that was a big uh, challenge for you? Actually, <laughs> getting out of my contract. So when you're teaching in China, and you have your contract, like a work contract. And so in order to break it, it's the same thing as like writing a letter of resignation. And so I was terrified because I've never done anything like that before. But basically what happened, I was teaching, but I was also tutoring on the side. And when I was tutoring, they weren't paying me for the tutoring, which technically they were supposed to. And my boss who had me tutoring, the actual principal over the school, she had like no idea what was happening. And my white colleague at the time, Nicholas, who I absolutely love, he literally was going through everything with me. And so he was like making bank off of like tutoring. Like he was making so much money. And I was telling him like, they don't pay me. We'll like tutor after school. And then you can make a lot of money tutoring there. And so in a way I felt uncomfortable because then it became a matter of like, I felt like, okay, am I being taken advantage of? And I knew that if, I were to bring it up, I felt like it was going to be kind of like a conflict thing because the person who was supposed to be my boss and kind of would always set things up for me. Like if something happened with my apartment, that's what I'm calling. He was kind of like my host while I was there on top of like somebody who I worked with. I knew it was going to be a conflict. And so me not being somebody who likes confrontation, it was very difficult for me to speak up, especially in the Chinese culture where me speaking up kind of like as a woman, they still have like those gender roles 
that are more traditional, I would say. Although like the principal was, she was a woman, but I still think they have like those gender roles where women are more timid, in my opinion, from what I saw. Mm -hmm. So it was a little difficult for me to speak up and somebody, I think it helps me now in corporate. But yeah, it was difficult to say, hey, you're not paying me and like what's happening. And I kind of feel like I'm being taken advantage of, especially as not only a woman, but as a black woman being in another country. And I mean, I come from America. I know what time it is when you're not getting compensated correctly. And I just felt like, you know, is this my time to go? And I think I knew I was having a hard time anyway. And I always think I'm a firm believer of God. And so I always think that if I know that I'm feeling uncomfortable and God will provide me a way out. And so I kind of saw that as my way out. When I come back, I'll continue my conversation with author of Black Girl in China, Faith Missick. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Don't forget to check out the website, TravelingCulturati.com and follow me on social media. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is The Culture Report, continuing the conversation with author of Black Girl in China and cultural educator Faith Missick. So how did China respond to you? Uh, I always say China hated me. <laughs> I always say China hated me because I think that it was just so difficult. And it was it, like China wasn't changing for me. Like I had to adjust to what China was. But I think that in certain areas, they embraced who I was. I had coworkers who had never, even a lot of people in my community probably have never seen a Black woman. And so a lot of their idea of what was going on in the world was based off of what they were able to see on TV because China is also very much Chinese news. Like everything, you have to use the VPN. And the internet is very monitored. And so I think that they were more receptive to who I was than fighting against it. It was very much of an understanding, like, how does this work? An opportunity to dance in China. I did a hip-hop dance. There was actually a hip-hop teacher who was Chinese. And so I took the class with a few of my younger students, and we actually performed. And he put on a video about crumping, which was Rise, based off of the LA riots. I think it's what the story is. I can't necessarily recall. But I remember trying to explain racism to my students and to like the instructor and the other like students who were there because it was based off of this movement for black people. And they couldn't really understand the idea that black and white people were not like, because they just saw America as America. And outside of China, it's kind of like, okay, you go to America to get the American dream and then you come back to your country and you work hard or you stay in America and you work hard and you're able to live a good life. But this idea of racism not directly affecting them they were very much tripped out on like how it worked and so i think that was an eye-opener for me that was my surprise was the idea that they didn't understand certain things that we see as like global issues because they are in this idea of china like it's almost like it's a bubble i would say that if you are privileged enough, if you have the money, the means to be able to do it, to get outside of it and let the rest of the world in, then you're privy to it. We're talking about your book, Black Girl in China. What was okay. your biggest misperception about being in China or um, that you learned there? Maybe you had a preconceived notion before going mm -hmm. that said, oh, you know what? <laughs> that wasn't it at all. My idea of what China would be like was based off of Chinese American. Chinese people are loud. They are outspoken. They remind me of Black people, honestly. <laughs> they remind me of my people. A lot of that comes from, I've noticed that in the education system, when you're younger, you're in a classroom of like 50 students. When they say China is overpopulated, very much. So you're in one classroom, it's like 50 students when you're like in the second grade. And eventually they weed that out, but they are taught to, you're all the way in the back of the class, you have to screen your answer. 
if I were asking questions, I would have a lot of kids just scream the answer at me because they wanted to make sure that they were heard. It is very loud on the subways, <laughs> <laughs> on the subways and the trains. And because like I grew up in Oak Park in the Chicago suburb, so I had Chinese American students who I would be in classes with, but they were very smart in terms of like grades wise from what I noticed, but they were very soft-spoken. And I don't know if that's like when you come into America thing, but in China, they were outside. Like <laughs> this is their country. And it very much felt like how you are in the black community where it's like, we try to make deals. We're at the markets. It's very much like city life. It might be because the area that I was in was not necessarily rural, but it was very much like city life. I think that was probably my biggest misconception is that I thought, oh, I'll go to China like they're not loud. You know, they're very timid. No, I think that was one. Another one I would say was the food. I didn't realize how like diverse like their palates are. They eat a lot of vegetables, which I really loved. I really enjoyed the food in China. I would definitely say that I enjoyed the food in China. It was so good. They cook based on different regions. So the regions that I was in, the food was much more spicy. Now, what would you say, or did they even tell you? Because sometimes people will tell you when they have a misperception about you. Were there any known misperceptions that the Chinese people had about you? I think that within my community, the biggest one was that I was from Africa. I would sit there and talk to my students, and I think that they understood like the hip hop culture, like their age and so what they're into. They understood that the hip hop culture was like an American thing. But they also didn't associate Black people with America. Like, they associated Black people with Africa. So for me to be like, no, I'm American, they're like, Shema, which is like, what? And it's very interesting, though, because they do know that there are Black Americans or African Americans. Yeah. So I wonder what their image or picture of Black Americans are versus someone who would be from an African nation. And I think that the Africans that I came across in China were very similar to Black Americans. They were very similar to, like, in terms of the way they dress, like, it's very modern, things like that. I know when I go to various African countries and I take groups, and mm -hmm. my groups are primarily African American, Africans know immediately we're not. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah well yeah <laughs> they know we're uh, they know we're american and i think vice versa and so i think it's more or less like the style not necessarily your facial features because i do see a lot of facial features that are very similar when i go to whether it's south africa or kenya or west africa like senegal or ghana you see the same facial features but I think sometimes it's based on the style and demeanor, mm -hmm. you know, our demeanor can be different. So it's just interesting that I wonder in their minds, what does an African-American look like or how is their presence versus someone from mm -hmm. Africa? So what would you give us some tips for someone who's looking to travel to China? Maybe not as immersed as you were, but maybe just a week or so. But what would be your top three tips to anyone who's considering travel to China? The first one would definitely be be open-minded, which is probably the biggest thing, because I would tell people, like, if you want to go and you want to have, like, a more westernized experience, then you go to Japan. But China is, like, a westernized influence in more of the bigger cities like Shanghai, Beijing, but they have their own way of living. And so it's a lot more difficult to adapt in everyday life in China versus going somewhere like Europe. So I would definitely say keep open-minded. It's going to make your experience so much better. The second thing I would definitely say is try to learn some of the language before you go. China was much harder to get around. I was playing charades a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing, and, and don't get me wrong, when I went to France, I didn't speak any French, but I at least was like on Duolingo and trying to learn a little bit. And a lot of people speak English in Paris. It's like an international city. But in Shanghai and Beijing, even because that's where most people will go visit, you need to learn a little bit. I would definitely say learn a little bit. Or if at least have learn, an app that you can play. Download, <laughs> yes, download the app. They have apps now. You can literally, Google Translate has its own app. You can say what you want to say. And then it's characters. So I don't should be able to read it. But you can show them and that'll help you get around. One thing that's interesting as well, as far as getting around, I thought that 
the whole world was very accessible in terms of like disability. One thing that I would say with China, there's not a lot of escalators, elevators. It's very much a lot of stairs. And it's interesting because when I came back in school, I said in terms of diversity, I noticed that a lot of my students who are dealing with some type of mental disability, they normally didn't go to the next level, which I've heard it has been a thing with their education system. A lot of people who may be challenged, whereas the U.S. is kind of more so up on disabilities, but are kind of pushed out to the rural areas and not necessarily the city. And it portrays in their transportation systems because when I go to the train station, I literally was lugging two big suitcases up the stairs because there was no escalator and there was no elevator. Yeah, and um, you find that around the world, actually. There's uh-huh. no Disabilities Act <laughs> like yeah. we, have, like we yes. have here. And I find that when I have my groups and we're traveling to different destinations. Okay, yeah. So I'm very happy that you brought that up as a tip because oftentimes yeah. we're going to even ancient sites and people are saying, mm-hmm. where's the elevator? Where are the escalators? Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. now we're at an ancient site. They're not going to disrupt or mm-hmm. change the ancient site for that. And even walkways that are paved for wheelchairs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Many other nations just don't have that Disability Act that requires these things. And one thing I think in China that I noticed is they're a very physically fit nation, especially their seniors. Mm-hmm. Their seniors do a lot of activities together. They get out a lot. And then, of course, the practices of Tai Chi and all of these things really keep them very mobile for a very long time. Well, thank you so much for those great tips and learning so much (laughs) about you, you, certainly a global impactor, an author, and a culture chaser. So how does one get a hold of the book, Black Girl in China? So Black Girl in China is on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, Black is spelled B-L-K, and then Girl, and the traditional spelling, and then it's that N, the letter N, and then China is the traditional spelling as well. I don't know what made me choose it to spell it like that, where it's not as easy. But during the time I was in a creative space, I was like, okay, well, let me just spell it like that. But if you look at my name as well, Faith Mystic, F-A-Y-T-H-E, and then Mystic, M-I-S-S-I-C-K, we could see a few of my books. I just finished my third one, which talks about me moving to Paris. So it's how to leave when you're ready to go. That one as well talks about risk-taking, but Black Girl in China, how to leave when you're ready to go in savage season. You can find all of my books on Amazon and Burns and Noble. Well, fantastic. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. A lovely time speaking with you. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.